of Fox Sports, joined by David Smith of The Athletic. On this episode, what's up with Kyle Busch? A look at his performance, and we'll tell you if Kyle fans should worry. Looking at that, is good enough good enough to win a title this year, or is Homestead still a must-win? And, of course, our preview for Darlington. But first, this is episode 32 of Positive Regression. This is the Jimmy Horton edition. Who? Some people might be saying that. I'll admit, David, Jimmy Horton, I knew the name, uh, certainly from the early 90s, but before this recording, just didn't know much about Jimmy Horton. Um, I'm not going to pretend I did, but you go back, you look at the record. He drove the number 32 car in 1993 for 13 races. He crashed in eight of them. And, but it's enough to leave a lasting impression, David, because one of those crashes is one of the most significant and important crashes in all of NASCAR history. In the 1993 Die Hard 500 at Talladega, uh, one of the great races in NASCAR history, Jimmy Horton, uh, drove that number 32 car. He was involved in a, uh, yeah, one of the big ones. Maybe, maybe not a, a traditional big one, but a multi-car crash. Uh, that was pretty dangerous. It actually sent uh, one driver, Stanley Smith, to the hospital in critical condition. But Horton's car flew over the wall in turns one and two, uh, which it took a while. I was at that race. Wow. And Alan, if if you know, um, if you've been to a race, you will know that if you listen to a scanner, one of the options is MRN or whoever is doing the radio. And you can hear during the commercial breaks, the turn announcers talk to one another. And it was then, and I just, I remember it vividly. One of the turn announcers said, Hey guys, I, I think a car went over the wall <laughs> and they, and they sat there during the commercial break and were counting the cars on the track to figure out who was not accounted for. And landed on Jimmy Horton. And sure enough, some camera, some TV camera got out there because there weren't cameras placed out there. They found the 32 car. <laughs> pretty much, pretty much just done, but out there on the grass outside of the turn and Jimmy Horton just kind of sitting in it uninjured. <laughs> Alive and sure. well. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, really one of the weirdest sights that you've ever seen. And since that day, Ellen, uh, we have fences <laughs> go on the turns now because no one ever really thought that a car would fly over the wall. In hindsight, it makes all the sense, especially at a track like Daytona or Talladega. It's unbelievable to think about now, but I mean, this is, this was 1993. This is when I started, you know, really getting into racing and watching them and you didn't think much of it then, but it's crazy to think about now. But yeah, go back. First thing I did with David, I type in Jimmy Horton in YouTube. And first of all, the first three results are Johnny Horton, who's some singer or something. But the fourth one is this crash. So immediately brought up all the memories because I, I knew exactly where this was going when I saw it. I click on it and it's the feed from WFSB Channel 3 in Hartford, Connecticut, which means that was the exact one I was watching because I was from Connecticut. So I just thought that was cool. But go back and watch this crash. And yeah, you'll see in the corners of Talladega, there's no catch fence in the corner. It seems mind-boggling right now. And Jimmy Horton just flies out of the track, down the embankment. They have the overhead shot eventually. Same thing on television. Ned Jarrett, 
Um, Ken Squire, we're trying to figure out, <laughs> did a car just fly out of here? Who, who is it? You know, mentally doing that tally. And it was the 32 car uh, of Jimmy Horton. And you can see from the helicopter shot, a, a driver or, you know, a person with his helmet on. And they're like, is that the driver? <laughs> and, uh, it, it was, it's crazy to go back and look at, but I remember watching that race and seeing a car fly out of Talladega. It's not something that, that has happened since. Yeah, and this is what he is most known for, but he had a worthwhile career and uh, actually still is. He was the t- uh, 2017 track champion at Orange County Fair Speedway in the Dirt Modified Division. But let's talk about his 1990 season okay. uh, briefly. <laughs> in the ARCA series, he scored five wins in his first five starts and competed three more times, didn't finish better than 31st, but he, he earned a 3.938 peer that year. It was his age 33 season, and it was a little bit of a Jeremy Lin moment for him. He, he really popped. That was when his star was rising. He gained the interest of one Rick Hendrick, who saw an opportunity when Daryl Waldrop broke his leg Later that year, uh, in July, at Daytona in practice, put Jimmy Horton in the number 17 tide ride for Daytona and Talladega. It didn't go that well. Um, Horton was actually caught up in, in the, in the big one on like lap three or four at Daytona. So, so that those, those races didn't pan out for him, but Rick Hendrick continued to like him. Uh, keep that in mind. But, uh, the remainder of his Arca career, he won, uh, three more times. His wins came at, uh, Daytona twice, Talladega twice, Atlanta twice, and Pocono twice. So pretty legitimate tracks if you're wanting to have a Cup Series career. But he raced sparingly, never a full-time guy in anything. Uh, he won his last race in 1995 at Atlanta while driving for Ken Schrader. He competed in exactly one race as a 39-year-old, uh, also in Atlanta. And that was his last race ever at such a high level, but that same weekend in Atlanta, 1995, Rick Hendrick came calling again. What? He wanted Jimmy Horton to qualify for the Cup Series finale in a number 58 car, and Horton's job would be to start and potentially park the race yeah. as to help Jeff Gordon clinch a championship. Well, Horton qualified the car and the show, so he got that part of his job done. But since he crashed out of the ARCA race the day prior, he injured himself. He could not compete in that cup race. He was replaced in that race by Jeff Purvis. Huh. Uh, for, fortunately, Gordon did not need the help. He did just fine, won a championship, and Gordon onto a, onto a, a great things. But Jimmy Horton, uh, his career didn't end there. He's competed locally. He's a dirt modified guy. He was a 2014 champion at Bridgeport Speedway. Even even recently, he was driving for a little outfit that you might have heard of, Alan, Halmar Racing, ah. which is the same Halmar that fields Stuart Friesen in the NASCAR Truck Series. So he's, he's doing his thing in the Northeast, uh, riding on dirt. Uh, Jimmy Horton, just good all-around uh, racer, never never quite popped, had a moment uh, briefly in 1990, and, uh, and flew over a wall in Talladega. Yeah, great insight there. 48 cup starts for Jimmy Horton, no top 10s, but he had those eight ARCA wins and still getting it done on a track today. So episode 32 of Positive Aggression, dedicated to Jimmy Horton and one damn memorable crash.
Let's get this one started because we are going back cup racing this weekend after a weekend off up in Canada, which was awesome for the trucks and Road America. Another good race and good place for Xfinity. But back on the cup series schedule, it is straight on till the end of the season now, and we are heading to Darlington. And David, one question that we really need to tackle is, should we be concerned about Kyle Busch and his performance lately? Now, obviously, everything is relative. He is still Kyle Busch. He is still one of the top, if not best, stock car drivers in the world. But he is also on an 11-race winless streak, which is, I believe, his longest since 2017. You know, probably should have won in between maybe Watkins Glen, somewhere in there. But you look even further at these last few races, just four top fives since his June win at Pocono. Again, all relative. That's great for some people. Not great if you're Kyle Busch. Uh, I think what's more concerning is the drop in central speed in the last five races, David. He, you know, he's the fastest pound for pound all year, but in the last few races, he's gone down to fifth. And then really, there's only one place to go when you're on top, so it's understandable. But he is now, in the last five races, he has been a slower car, if you will, than his teammates in the 19 and the 11 of Denny Hamlin. And we heard him voice some of those frustrations, saying he's getting his butt whooped by his teammates. So... Should we be concerned about where Kyle Busch is right now? Hmm. That actually, that last quote is uh, is interesting. So, since his uh, most recent win, which came at Pocono in June, he has scored the third most points uh, among all drivers. He trails only Denny Hamlin and Martin Truex. So there, there's the there's the Joe Gibbs uh, racing thought that he has. But also since Pocono, Alan, he has. The third fastest car, he said it dipped recently. In this winless stretch, he trails only Kevin Harvick and Kyle Larson in central speed. I think that's interesting. He didn't rank first in either of those two metrics, but he was the only driver to rank among the top three in both. So still, despite being winless, fairly well-rounded, I don't know that it's that much of a cause for concern. Uh, and then if we omit uh, the road course races and Daytona in races on non-drafting ovals since Pocono. He ranks second in average finish, trails only Denny Hamlin in that regard. So if you are a Kyle Busch fan, you might be getting antsy. If you are Kyle Busch, you might be uh, reeling from what you call the curse of the standard, uh, not living up to your own internal expectations, but at the same time, I don't see a concrete reason to be that worried about Kyle Busch moving forward because that 18 team is still very good. Very good. Uh, you know, the, the question we'll ask here in, in a bit is, is good enough, good enough for a title, but perception versus reality here. Uh, if you're the driver and you're coming out and you're seeing, you're getting beaten by your teammates. I heard Chris Rice say this once over at College Racing. You know, we have to be the best RCR car, if you will, before we can be the best Chevy. And we have to be the best Chevy before we can be the best car in in all the Xfinity series. You know, he made that, that, that kind of progression. If you're not the best car on your team or you don't feel that, are, are you feeling it in terms of how are we going to win a championship if I'm not even the best car at Joe Gibbs Racing right now? Can, can you understand why he has that perception? Yeah, I think it is, but I think it, this, this problem, uh, is more perception than anything. And I actually can, can see a way where it could be far worse, the perception that is, because 
if this stretch occurred at the beginning of the season and not right now, we'd be subjected to a lot of hot takes as to what's wrong with Kyle. Why can't he close the deal? But instead, he's at a point in the season where he has four wins. He's locked into the playoffs and everyone just kind of shrugs about it. Yeah, the 18 hasn't won in a while, but I don't know that that takes him out of something like championship contention completely. The reality is that he is still the kind of all-around competitor. He is good at everything. No statistical weaknesses that, uh, like we've talked about, like I've written on The Athletic. Um, and that is something that simply cannot be ignored. Yes, this is diminished performance in a sense that he was number one across the board for spells at a time early in the season, and he's not right now. But also, this is probably the stretch of the season where you don't have to be as prolific if you're going to be good on the tracks that matter once the playoffs start. And this is such a long season. We see it every year. Uh, it's, a, it's a series of runs, right? I mean, we see drivers get get hot and then fall off and then come back or vice versa, start out slow and then and then get the momentum at the right time, kind of like what Denny Hamlin's kind of doing right now in terms of the last few finishes. We, it's something we see every year. There's going to be ups and downs. Rarely do we see a, a dominant car, if, if ever, from week one to week 38 still at this point last year i don't think anyone we weren't you know looking at the penske cars as potential championship favorites and then brad won i think three races in a row and joey won a title so there are ebbs and flows to all this so again if you're a kyle bush fan i get it if you're kyle bush i can understand being angry at at seeing two of your teammates finish ahead of you for the last, uh, or for the summer, you know what I mean? <laughs> taking, taking a little summer break. I understand that frustration, but David, you've enlightened us with some of the numbers. On the other end of it, uh, crew chief Adam Stevens, can, is there anything you can read into his decision making? Has it, has it changed at all with this ebb and flow? Has he tried to adjust or, or do anything, you know, in these last few weeks where he's not up to Kyle Bush first place standards, if you will? I believe Adam Stevens is a good strategist, and I believe that that gets lost in the weeds because Kyle Busch is such a good driver. He's a rising tide who lifts all boats, and Stevens has benefited that in some respect. But as a strategist, they're retaining 67% of the time on green flag pit cycles. That is above the series average and is rare for crew chiefs of cars with sensational speed like the 18 team has. Uh, they retain 62% of the time when relinquishing a top five spot. And that is phenomenal when you consider the series average for that is currently 43%. Adam Stevens's team does not profile as one for which a crew chief would make bids for stage points. For the most part, that proves true with Stevens. He kindly forfeited points at Sonoma. For instance, a race in which the 18 car was the second fastest in the race, but a couple months later, Watkins Glen, the 18 car ranked as the fifth fastest car, but was clearly in a competitive tier lower than the nine and the 19, if you could remember back to that race. Stevens elected to collect stage points in that event. The most recent Michigan race saw them take big swings with pit strategy, and it worked. They gained 19 positions across three pit cycles, 
and they finished sixth that day when they had the 11th fastest car. What this tells us is that Stevens absolutely strategizes to his car's capability. And I like this. Uh, reactive crew chiefs lower their strategic intelligence based on their competition. And that can put you in a bad spot. Stevens is what I call a proactive crew chief. That means he's malleable, which feels important heading into the playoffs and potentially into a homestead finale that contains a lot of questions at this point in the season. Yeah. And, and those questions, I mean, look, there's, we have the new package that we've been talking about all season. It has changed the racing. It has, uh, you know, changed the on track product and we know what to expect, or at least we've come to think what we know, we know what to expect at Homestead. It's that with this playoff format, David, I mean, look at the, you know, the four go into it and every year the winner of that race, uh, has been one of the play, one of the final four drivers who's then gone on to win the championship. It's worth asking with the rule change and the different racing we've seen this year, the, the volatility of it all, do, is there the potential where in just being good enough or being one of the best cars, the champion won't win Homestead? Do you think that this rules package lends itself to that at all? I believe that it does. And, and Alan, you're quick to mention how the final run of the Homestead race dictates the finishing order. It certainly did last year. That will again be the case, but there will be an added twist this year. Thanks to the unknown of the rules package right now. And I've talked with a few folks with teams who believe that each team participating in the championship four will have to bring either a short run car or a long run car and because of what this rule package limits, there won't be a car in the field that can run both short and long at an elite level. It is very likely at least one of the championship four guesses wrong, and it will be a wild misfire. We're going to see some crazy stuff with with the participants in the championship four this year. It's possible we don't see one of the championship four win the race based solely on how volatile things are at the ends of these races on mile-and-a-half tracks. And this is where a driver like Kyle Busch is in high demand. If he has no statistical weaknesses, he's both a strong restarter, strong short-run driver, and he's very good on long runs. His uh, long-run passing acumen is excellent. It's grown within the last two years. He's now arguably the top passer in the sport then he's the best possibility to carry a car that is ill-suited for the finish at Homestead. And this is also where a crew chief like Adam Stevens, so malleable, who strategizes around his car's strengths, could potentially thrive. So when we talk about the 18 team having a rough stretch of races relative to their expectation, and which and, and they have, I think that can be argued, we have to remember they're still comprised of the kind of competitors in Bush and Stevens best suited for how we reward championships and their numbers within this uh, dry spell confirm that. So from where I sit, everything is still pretty good. There's still a positive trajectory for the 18 team. I don't know that there's a crisis in Candyland just yet, 
they still exist as a team that can't be ignored going into the playoffs and then potentially Homestead. And look, and if they're that good, I don't see how they wouldn't be winning Homestead, right? But uh, in terms of the, the winner not being of the championship four, we haven't seen that yet, David. So I know we haven't seen this rules package at Homestead, but I'm just, maybe I'm being too practical here, but... I mean, last year it was the top four finished one, two, three, four in the race. And I think as the years have gone on, we've seen some reverence from the rest of the field in terms of, I don't know if anyone would admit it, but I kind of think they let these playoff drivers go or give them at least a little bit of a break, the ones competing for the title. So I think we'll continue to see that. So I, I still have to believe the winner of Homestead will be the champion. Uh, hopefully I'm not being too practical in my thinking there. It's just that's the evidence we've seen the last few years, and I don't see that changing. Yeah, but does it concern you that we have not had a repeat winner this year on a moderate mile and a half track? I can't answer that question because I just learned that fact. <laughs> but I appreciate you telling me. And and but and that's kind of where where the questions abound, right? I mean, teams are I won't say that they're flummoxed, but I would say that they are still skeptical and are still learning this package expressly for these types of races on the shallow banked intermediate tracks, there's going to be some decision-making right now is the time when teams locked in in the playoffs are thinking of what kind of car they're going to bring to the different playoff tracks. And especially Homestead where look, it's a one race, uh, it's a one race show and that can be a pretty fatal error and simply choosing the wrong car for the way the end of that race breaks. But I think we're going into it now. We're 12 weeks out, but I think we can go ahead and expect that the final run of that race is going to dictate the champion. And right now we're seeing what teams are best suited for all of these given scenarios that could take place. This is valuable data we're getting, even though these tracks don't necessarily correlate to what we're going to see in the playoffs. Interesting to think about, even though we are, as you said, uh, about three months out so far, never too early to think about Homestead. You know, the, the teams certainly are, especially those already in the playoffs. But first, we have to get through Darlington, which is where we are going back to this weekend for the annual Labor Day race, the Southern 500, one of the more fun events of the year with the whole throwback scheme. And look, it's 500 miles, but time-wise, this is often the longest race of the year. Um, you know, you expect a lot of heat. You expect drivers to be gassed after this race. Uh, it is a long, grueling race on a very unique racetrack. Uh, something to think about as well, David, uh, pit stops. I mean, double digit pit stops likely, uh, during this race, which can, you know, throw off, be an X factor. Uh, that's a lot more than m many races we have during a season. Goodyear's bringing each team will have 14 sets of tires to deal with, uh, during the wow. race. So yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot of, you know, we think of restarts obviously and strategy and speed and all that. But this is the one race where double-digit pit stops, I mean, your crew could make a difference uh, for for good, as as you would argue, some would argue, or, or for, for bad, as many others would argue as well, if you're having an off night on pit road. So when we're looking at the Southern 500, David, what, what are you looking at in terms of strategy for this race? You just made a great point about the length of this race. It isn't the longest race in terms of mileage, but it is going to border on four hours. And given the constant management of tires and the fact that this is a full contact race given the heat 
Um, that means it is going to be grueling. It strikes me as a race set up to produce tired driver mistakes, uh, probably more than what you would see from like the Coca-Cola 600. Uh, I don't think any driver will be perfect on Sunday night. I'll be forward in saying that, but the key will be minimizing the amount of brain fades in this one. The driver that makes the least amount of mistakes will probably do pretty well. But in regards to what works well, in two ways, strategy matters. And that is both in regards to tire management and pit strategy. This this race is going to be bonkers as to how much fall off we're going to see on lap times on old tires. It's going to look similar to old Atlanta. The drivers who are adept at tire management should excel at Darlington. I know every Atlanta race, Kevin Harvick is discussed for his unique line that no other driver can emulate, but he's also really good at Atlanta because he takes care of his tires. That's a key part of the equation for him at that track, and it's a reason why he should be good this weekend. And similarly, Brad Keselowski should be plenty good. Again, tire management is something that is in his wheelhouse. He won Darlington last year. He won Atlanta this year. He routinely gets overlooked as a favorite to win these types of races. And even this week, he isn't the odds on favorite. But this is the precise style of race that seems to amplify his ability. And because tires are so important. And because this race is so long, anticipate green flag pit cycles being prevalent. There were four cycles in this race last year, and Keselowski, for as good as he was with his tires, won this race in part because on the final stop, Paul Wolf jumped him from ninth to fifth in the running order. Now, Denny Hamlin won at Darlington in 2017 despite dropping from 1st to 11th on the final green flag stop. And that is tire management mattering more than initial track position and clean air. So a bad stop, including a bad stop during a green flag pit cycle, will not implode your Southern 500 if the rest of the race breaks in your favor. This is going to be a rare event in which pit strategy could mean a lot if that's what you choose to, to rely on, or it could be minimized if your setup and race are designed solely around managing tires. And I think that's something that our listeners should look out for. You'll see the smart drivers because they'll be blowing by other cars. If you're interested in knowing who's bad at tire management, just take note of the cars that look as if they're standing still. And that's going to be the separator in the Sunday's race. And look, 367 laps, I believe, the 14 sets of tires that that averages out. Uh, you know, Goodyear sends out – I'm not doing the math on the fly. Don't worry. Uh, but Goodyear sends out a release. You know, that, That's about 26 laps uh, per tire set if you wanted it to. But there will be times where drivers and teams come in, I would think, after 5 or 10 or 12 laps. You know what I mean? So the, the tire management calls – will be a heavy factor because you want some at the end, right? Uh, so that, that'll be interesting to see the calls as, as you were just talking about. How about restarts? Something we always look at. Um, they, Darlington, just so unique going into that first corner. Uh, how do restarts play out at a race like this? 
You're absolutely right. Unique is the word here because last year cars on the inside of the first two rows retained position 100% of the time. Really? On both and, no matter the lane. In, in, no, inside. Oh, okay. Inside. Yep, between rows 3 and 6 though, the outside was the preferred groove retaining over 83% of the time. Weird. So in in watching those restarts, here's what happened. The cars lined up first and third got big launches and moved into the middle groove quickly. And that congested that line to the point where it was still, it was still moving. They were still going fast, but there was nowhere to go for cars on the inside. Now, what could be interesting here is how the dynamic shifts with this rules package. If cars cannot accelerate as quickly, then the preference should shift from the inside to the outside universal throughout the field. We might actually see teams react to a shift during the race. So keep watch of what the leader is doing, what lane they're selecting in those first two rows, because that's going to dictate early. That's going to dictate what happens later in the race. But again, it's one of these events where the new rules package creates some uncertainty, but that is because this track was so unique that restarts didn't look like they typically do at every other track. Um, whether that changes, we'll see, and we should see teams react to it on the fly. Another cool X factor in an already cool race. Um, let's go with some sleeper picks this week. We've been talking about the, the playoff bubble for a while, but in terms of getting that checkered flag in the Southern 500, a crown jewel event, who are you looking at as a, as a sleeper pick? Maybe someone who hasn't won this year or just someone out of the ordinary. Well, Team Penske finished first and second in this race last year, so I'm going to pick the uh, the Penske driver that didn't finish first or second, Ryan Blaney. <laughs> yep. uh, obviously, he's privy to what Keselowski and Logano do well at this place, but in his own right, he's pretty good on tracks with heavy tire wear. He led 41 laps this year at Atlanta. He finished fifth in Fontana, and if we're suggesting that green flag pit strategy could be minimized if tire wear management is close to perfect. It's good news in, for Blaney because Jeremy Bullins does not inspire as a strategist all that much. And I think in a race in which it's difficult for his crew chief to get in the way, that's a pretty good starting point for young Ryan Blaney. Uh, I, I think he could certainly be viable. He could be a sleeper pick for the win as well. I will pick someone in a similar situation who has watched his teammates uh, collect checkered flags this year and while still putting up good performances. I'm going with Mr. Eric Jones to win, uh, or at least be a sleeper pick for this weekend at the Southern 500. Uh, David, in terms of speed, you know, tracks this size this year, he's got a top six car in terms of speed, so he's in the ballpark. And his most recent races, uh, you do the top five in central speed. You know, I mean, the the last five races, how how teams rank. He has uh, they, they've been climbing the ranks that that twenty teams. So uh, good momentum, if you will. And I just like what he's done. He's got two starts there. Still a young driver. You you would think a young driver may struggle at Darlington. Two starts, all the laps completed, a fifth and an eighth place finish. Why not keep that progression going? Why not put him as a potential winner? 
on Sunday night and for a crown jewel race and for lock him into the playoffs. I think he's got potential there. Gibbs Carr, he's certainly going to have to beat his teammate, Denny Hamlin. I think he might, Denny Hamlin might be the favorite this weekend, obviously, but uh, if he's going to do it, I, I think Eric Jones has a shot. That's a really good choice. And uh, we've spoken about Chris Gale, his crew chief, uh, on past episodes. We talked th- about them not collecting stage points where they potentially should have during the middle part of the season where it did not look as if they were going to make the playoffs or at least be borderline. But now they're in. I do think Chris Gale would be an exceptional crew chief if stages weren't a thing. But unfortunately, they are. But for this race... Doesn't really matter, does it? I mean, he can he can kind of call the race that he wants to call. I don't think a conservative strategy would suit any crew chief well this weekend. But if there is uh, any mistakes, it might not matter as much just based on the tires. So we're going to learn a lot about Eric Jones's driving ability, how he manages tires, and like you said, he's got some um, some good uh, drivers within the JGR camp in Bush and. Hamlin and Truex, I believe, uh, yeah, all of them are Southern 500 winners, right? So he's, uh, he has the ability to learn from drivers that have done it well in the past. So we shall see. What do you want to see this weekend? If you had your ideal Southern 500, what do you want to see? Ooh, you know what? This recent stretch of races included uh, a litany of two mile tracks, uh, a couple road courses, New Hampshire, and none of these places have much of a bearing on playoff performance, really, right? We shouldn't be making playoff bets based on what we saw at those tracks. So for drivers like Denny Hamlin and Kevin Harvick, who came alive during that stretch, I want to see if they're still relevant. I don't know that Darlington matters much in regards to playoff performance either, but I'm curious because Hamlin's history at Darlington precedes him. We know that. He's entered into the Xfinity race. It is poised to be a bountiful weekend for him. And as weird as it sounds, a good cup race on Sunday night is just more validation for him being a serious championship threat. Both he and Harvick have been very fast during that stretch. And if it continues this weekend... That's another data point in a, in a string of data points. And the longer the string, the more difficult it is to ignore going into the playoffs. Uh, so I think good results by either of them would be pretty telling. Good stuff. Um, I, I'm, I, you know me, David. I'm always pie in the sky. You know, just thinking about the ideal ending. We were talking about it before, the comers and goers, those who know how to save tires. I want to see one of those old school tire saving strategy endings come into play like the the accordion effect of the old Atlanta uh, you know maybe like a 35 lap plus run maybe at the end where someone has good tires uh, you know like a rabbit and then the tortoise is coming who's saving his tires and just gets closer and closer and closer and closer and i want to see that type of ending where the different old school strategy meets the new school aero package what have you old versus new tire saving versus being the rabbit I want to see that kind of come together at the end and have that natural drama play out. That's what I hope for on Sunday night after a long, long night. And uh, I want to see tired drivers, but I want to see that that accordion effect at the end. Yeah, that's actually pretty nice because when you think back to just races on the old Atlanta, even Xfinity races, 
seemed really easy to dominate, but very difficult to win. So there's even, even when you see a car out front just crushing the field, there are other strategies beneath the surface taking place and teams managing their tires differently. I, you know what? I don't know that it's far-fetched, Alan, to see a team completely run out of 14 sets of tires. That that also could oh, take place. Ideally. Right? Like just, I mean, I'm sure I, every three laps they'll want them. So the drive, that, that's yeah, where the, I mean, the, the, the crew chief really comes in like to, to shut the driver up and say no. Yeah. So, I mean, there there could be teams going up against uh, that bind. I mean, it, it there are going to be a bevy of different strategies manifesting during this race. So even if you see a car, you know, with a, a humongous lead for a large chunk of the race, the race isn't over. I mean, th- that's just, that is the equalizer that tire fall off brings. I wish we had more tracks with grittier, uh, surface, uh, and, 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 uh, no recently paved tracks, uh, and where tires mattered everywhere, but we don't. So we're going to have to, uh, take this race, take this moment, uh, enjoy it because we don't see it very often, um, but it should provide, could provide a unique finish. Yes. And if we don't get the long run at the end, I want to see one of those questionable calls where some drivers, you know, say it's a late caution, eight, nine, 10 laps to go. And some drivers have to come in. I, I want to see some drivers and teams stay out because come on, take a risk. All, what are you going to risk finishing? You're already in 11th. What are you going to finish? 13th? Who cares? If you have a shot at winning, I want to see some teams risk it if that's what it comes down to at the end. I think it was Chris Gale earlier this year says, isn't anyone watching the end of these races? Like, why not take a risk? Like, it's mind-blowing sometimes the teams that aren't willing to take a risk when the only position that matters is, is, is the win this late in the season. So I hope we see some risk-taking if indeed we get a late caution. We'll see. And this is the this is the Southern 500. I mean, yeah, come on, you, it, the, the winner the winner gets a parking spot forever at Darlington Raceway. Come on now, don't you don't you want to join the likes of Dale Earnhardt and Jeff Gordon and Regan Smith? Take a risk. Come on, do it. It worked for Regan. It worked for Regan. But uh, always a fun weekend. So uh, good, another good episode, episode 32 of Positive Regression. Don't you forget out there, we are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, and Luminary. Wherever you listen to your podcast. Podcasts, we are available. If you like what you're hearing, we know you do because we hear from a lot of you, but please leave us a rating or a review. That does help this podcast gain some visibility. Your help in spreading the word is appreciated. We've seen it grow throughout the season. Tell a friend, help your fantasy team, help your friend's fantasy team, whatever you need. We're here for you. We appreciate you telling other people about this podcast. If you have any questions, we want to answer them. You know we do. That uh, We'll answer them right here on the podcast. Reach out on Twitter at POSREGPOD, P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D. David, always busy. What are you working on? This week on The Athletic, I'm homing in on Stuart Haas Racing, uh, dissecting the teams outside of their bellwether number four team. So the teams of Eric Almarola, Clint Boyer, and Daniel Suarez, there is potential for all three of them making the playoffs. Uh, I want to look into how they go about their business. So check that out. And also stop by motorsportsanalytics.com where Chris Mitchell is putting his nifty prediction model 
to the test in advance of Darlington and Indianapolis. Good stuff. And, uh, of course, make sure you watch Race Hub all week and you're racing throughout the weekend. Kind of a slow week for me this week on Race Hub coming off Canada. Uh, the truck series has uh, a little bit of a break before we head to Las Vegas for the third and final uh, race of the first round. But this week on Race Hub, check out my Twitter account for uh, we did What's in a Number. It was kind of our summer series. And the latest one was the number 24, David, which is very unique in history because it only has one driver with wins and that one driver has 90 plus. So uh, it's a very unique number in terms of NASCAR history and its amount of wins and the number of drivers with wins. So it's always fun writing up uh, that that series of what's in a number in the 24, certainly a unique number in NASCAR history. So check all that out and uh, make sure, yeah, just check out my Twitter feed. We're doing a lot of cool stuff over at FS1. But most of all, thank you again for listening to episode 32. I hope you have a great, safe holiday weekend and enjoy the Southern 500. For David Smith, I'm Alan Cavana. Thank you for listening to Positive Regression. Rose Davis, historian and co-host of the sports podcast, Burn It All Down. And now I'm hosting the new season of American Prodigy, all about black girls in gymnastics. For the last 40 years, black gymnasts have moved from the margins to the core of the sport and changed gymnastics along the way. Now they tell their stories. You'll meet trailblazers like Diane Durham, superstars like Jordan Childs, and everyone in between. Listen to American Prodigies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.